morning. You know, I got to tell you, I was really impacted by one of the lyrics to the songs that we just sang. There was a, um, a lyric that it was talking about the Word of God, and it said, blow through the caverns of my soul. And I, I'm imagining that the, the author, whoever wrote that lyric, was probably thinking of like a, like a gentle breeze. And I don't know if it's just because I've seen too many action movies or something, but I imagine like an explosion, like through the caverns of my soul. And I, and I, I you know, you imagine the Word of God just incinerating whatever impurity was there before. And I, just now I was thinking, man, I need that. I need the Word of God to blow through the caverns of my soul. So I thought maybe we could pray for that right now before we start. Why don't you pray with me? God, I pray that the Word, that Your Word would blow through the caverns of our soul, that You would tell us what You want us to hear today. Help us to listen very carefully to just Your voice, Yours only. Amen. So moms, I bet you remember what that was like, this image here, holding your newborn baby. I know for some of you it's been a long time, but for some of you it's probably a pretty fresh memory. And that's the way it is for me. I, I, remember, I remember the limp weight of a newborn baby tied up against my chest, slowly breathing. And I remember, I remember the body heat from this little chunk of person, like a tiny furnace. If you can... If you can remember back, during those quiet moments, did you ever wonder what your little baby was thinking about? Probably things like the global economy, right? Like the rising income inequality in America and the disappearance of the middle class. Your baby was probably, in those quiet moments, stressing about the human impact on the environment and the depletion of our natural resources and global warming and that sort of thing. That's ridiculous, isn't it? Babies don't think about that kind of stuff. You know why? Those things are too high and lofty for babies to be thinking about. Complex social issues are for grown-ups to think about. You know what your baby was more likely thinking about during those quiet moments in the rocking chair? Mommy. 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 We're going to read Psalm 131 this morning. So why don't you please open your Bible to Psalm 131. This is a poem that was written by David, and it uses the behavior of a newborn baby to teach us about how we should relate to God. So while you're going there, I'm going to take a few minutes to explain the context. This is one of 15 psalms in the Bible that are called Songs of Ascent. The Bible scholars believe that these are songs that were sung by Israelite worshipers as they ascended the road to Jerusalem, as they were on their way to a Jewish festival where they would worship the Lord at the temple. So these songs have a lot of the characteristics that you would expect to see from a song. They're fairly short, they're repetitive, they're, they're poetic in their style. And, and these 15 psalms always have a hopeful message. So think of the, the songs you used to sing on the school bus on your way to a field trip. It's kind of like that, except these songs of ascent are, are not just silly ways to pass the time on this long trip to Jerusalem. These songs were specifically intended to prepare the heart of the worshiper to meet with God at the temple. So why don't you stand with me? Let's honor God's word, and I will read. Let's read this one more time. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul, 
like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, you can be seated. This psalm is about posture. Not so much our physical posture, but our inward posture toward God. Like the way we conduct ourselves and the the attitude of our hearts as we stand in the presence of God. There are three verses in this psalm. And each one of those verses has a a distinct idea. Verse 1 tells us about what our posture should not look like. And then by contrast, verse 2 tells us what our posture should look like. And then verse 3 tells us about how we should move forward in that appropriate posture toward God. So we're going to start with verse 1 and slowly make our way through. The opening phrase of this psalm is this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. And it's kind of a, kind of a vague statement. And you, you, right away you wonder what's so wrong about lifting up your heart. Well, what David is saying is that his heart is like the core of his being. And what he has not done is take his core and exalt it to some greatly high position where he doesn't belong or where he doesn't deserve to be. That's what he's saying in the, the first part of this psalm. And then he continues on to say the same type of thing about his eyes. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. And he's talking about his field of vision, specifically like the focus of his vision. Think of this as your vision for the future, who you want to become. It's that kind of vision. And the scripture is telling us that we should not aspire to some greatly high position, a position that's too high for us. So this is a little bit like a, a young, rebellious child who thinks that daddy's being unfair. And so he brazenly puffs out his chest and he points his finger like this and he says, Daddy, you go sit in the corner. And there's a reason that just seems wrong to us. Because the problem is that child has his eyes raised too high. He aspires to a level of authority that's way out of his league. He's, he doesn't have nearly the kind of maturity that he would need to understand that level of parental uh, authority. He certainly can't understand all of the responsibilities that come along with that level of parental authority. And so it's clear that this child doesn't know who he's talking to, and he needs to learn his place. That's what David is saying in the opening verse of this psalm. He's saying, I know my place in this relationship with God. I understand the disparity between my low position And God's greatly high position. My eyes are not raised too high. It reminds me of something that my parents used to say. They would say, son, don't get too big for your britches. Verse 1 continues on with that same theme. And it says, I don't occupy myself with things too great. You know, this is like saying it's not my style. It's not my typical practice to associate myself with things that are too great or too marvelous. At first, I had a problem with that statement because it just seems so underachieving. We've, known, we've all known people before who are reluctant to try new things, right? These are people who are faced with a, a new method or a new technology or maybe new software or something like that, and they look at it, and the first thing they say is, I don't know about all this new stuff. I mean, that looks way too complicated for me. You know what? I don't want anything to do with this new way. I'm just going to stick with the old way. Thank you. And that can be kind of frustrating because you know that if this person would just give the new way a try, 
that they would really like it. They might, they might really understand it, but they just haven't applied themselves yet. It's really important for us to recognize that in this scripture, that's not the way it is. So when it says, I don't occupy myself or I don't associate myself with things that are too great, that's not an underachieving attitude. Here's the reason why. The Hebrew word that's translated marvelous in this scripture, it carries with it a really important distinction, uh, distinction between things that are difficult for us versus things that are too difficult for us. There are certain truths of God that are very complex and very hard for us to comprehend, but we can comprehend them if we apply ourselves and if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. But distinguished from that are a whole class of truths that are just too difficult for us. A whole class of truths about God and His creation that we cannot comprehend. Even if we apply ourselves to fully understanding these things, we just can't do it. And God is saying through the mouth of David in this scripture, we should not even waste our time on those things. I want you to use your imagination with me for a few minutes. I want you to think of the number five. Very simple. Just think of the number five. And I know that's kind of an abstract idea because it could be five of anything. In fact, most of you are probably thinking of the character five. But the way we're thinking right now is zero-dimensional because there are zero dimensions to these thoughts we're having about the number five. Okay, so next I want you to think of five inches, a distance. So you, right away you think of something that's five inches wide. Okay, and imagine you have a sheet of paper in front of you, and on that sheet of paper you take a pen and you draw a line that's five inches wide, or we'll say five inches long. The way we're thinking now is one-dimensional, because there's just one single dimension to this line we drew on the paper, its length. Now I want you to think of something five inches long and five inches wide. So on your piece of paper you can imagine in your mind a square with sides that are five inches long. So now we're thinking in two dimensions. We could think of other shapes, like a triangle or a circle or a trapezoid. We could even think of things that are not shapes that we could draw on our piece of paper. You could think of drawing a bicycle or a tree or a little stick person. Or if you go completely away from the piece of paper, you could even think of like a famous painting that you've seen before on a flat canvas. Or you could think of a YouTube clip that you could watch on your flat computer screen. Two-dimensional thinking allows us to imagine anything in two dimensions on a flat surface. But next, I want you to expand your thinking a little bit more and imagine something that's five inches wide, five inches long, and five inches deep. So the square just jumped off the page and became a cube. Well, you could also think of a cone or a cylinder or a sphere. So, of course, now we're thinking in three dimensions. Three-dimensional thinking just explodes the possibilities of what we can imagine. Actually, almost everything we see during our lives, everything we see with our eyes is, is three-dimensional. Our brains are very good at making sense of things that exist in three-dimensional space. We can imagine things that are, or we can tell the difference between things that are very far away versus things that are close. We can even imagine the, uh, or guess at the volume of water in a bucket because we're experts at three-dimensional thinking. But if I asked you to think in four dimensions, you might just give me a skeptical look. But what about time? I want you to imagine a, a cube with five-inch sides flying through the air over the course of five seconds. 
So now we'll call this four-dimensional thinking. And our brains are pretty good at this too, understanding things that happen in three-dimensional space over the course of time. You could imagine dinosaurs strolling through an open field in the ancient past, or you could imagine uh, the the Wright brothers making their first flight in the not-so-ancient past. You could imagine um, your, your kids downstairs right now doing a craft in Sunday school at this very moment. You could even think of the how long it's going to take you to get home after church today and the three-dimensional path that your car is going to take you to get there. As humans, we're pretty good at even thinking in four dimensions, three-dimensional space and time. But that's where it stops for us. If I ask you to think in five dimensions or six dimensions, now it just gets ridiculous. You just look at me funny. Because we're confined to these four dimensions, time and space, even the best of us. One of the greatest minds that ever existed belonged to a man named Albert Einstein. One of Einstein's crowning achievements was something he called the theory of relativity. You know what that is? It's a relationship between space and time. So here's Einstein's theory of relativity, this profound example of the the capabilities of, of human intelligence. And even that is confined within the limits of these four dimensions, three-dimensional space and time, because it's the best we can do. Five dimensions, six dimensions, it's just silly. It doesn't even make sense to us. We don't even even know what that means. You know, some people spend a lot of time and energy trying to understand some of the deepest and most profound questions about God, things like, how he could allow horrible atrocities to happen to seemingly innocent people, good people, even followers of Christ, or how he can allow some babies to die just minutes after they were born, or how is it that God predestines us and chooses us before, long before we even existed, yet during these years of our lives on earth, we make real choices that have real consequences, even the decision to follow him or not. How did God create the universe in seven days? Seriously, how did he do it? Exactly when is Christ going to return and what is the precise order of events that will take place in the end times? When we can't, we can't find answers to these types of questions, we, we get frustrated. And sometimes we get angry or bitter or even complacent toward God. Do you know where the answers to these types of questions exist? You know what kind of thinking would allow us to comprehend these highly exalted truths of God? I don't know either. Maybe if we could think in five dimensions? Some of the deepest and most profound truths of God might exist in 12 dimensions or 300 dimensions. Who knows? The point is, we get four. Three-dimensional space and time. That's it. That's the way God designed it. Here's the way he says it. Here's the way God says it in Isaiah chapter 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, here's the danger. When we see the things God does or the things that he allows to happen, and they don't make sense to us, We make false conclusions about him. We decide that things must be out of his control, like he's too weak to manage it all. Or 
maybe he's in control, but he just doesn't care that much. He's just messing around with us, like some sort of a cruel experiment. Or worse yet, maybe we decide that no one is in control, that things just happen randomly by chance in the world. And we arrive at these sophisticated conclusions using this tiny fraction of what we actually understand about God within the confines of time and space. How arrogant we are to confine God within the boundaries of our understanding. God did not build us with the mental equipment to fully understand him or the universe he created. Doesn't that seem strange to you? If God was going to create a a race of human creatures to give him glory, to worship him, which is exactly why we exist, shouldn't he at least build us with enough brain power to, to, to understand the fullness of his being so that we could worship him in the most complete way? Why would he just build us with this limited capability to understand these four dimensions and then go to the trouble of stepping from his infinity into our meager time and space and then suffer and die as a sacrifice, knowing that with our our human limitations, we would only understand a fraction of what he actually did for us. Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he build us with sufficient capacity to fully understand him? And then he goes so far as to say in this scripture here, Don't even try to understand those things about me which you cannot understand. Don't even waste your time on them. you got better things to do. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. You know what? I don't even occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous. That's verse 1. That's our indication of what our posture should not look like. So let's move on to verse 2. It starts with a very important transition word, the word but. Here's what it's saying. It's saying, rather than having this haughty disposition toward God, here's what I have done. I have calmed and quieted my soul. I want to elaborate on the Hebrew word that's translated calmed in the Scripture The word implies balancing yourself, making adjustments to your behavior to bring yourself to a state of composure. This is like taking the wild extremes of erratic behavior and taming it down, making it yield, calming it down. What David is saying in the first part of verse 2 is this, I have made myself behave. Back in the early 2000s, there was a reality show on TV on the National Geographic channel. It was called The Dog Whisperer. You guys remember that one? My wife and I used to love watching this show before we had kids. We didn't even have a dog. But the the, the main character, the star of the show, is a man named Caesar Milan. And he claimed that he could rehabilitate even the most wild, out-of-control dogs. And so people would call from all over the country with their savage beast animals, and they would invite Caesar Milan over to their house to tame the dog on the spot. It was fascinating. So the cameras would follow Caesar Milan over to this person's house, and by the time he got there, the animal is in some sort of like a cage, like a kennel. And, and so he would approach and slowly open the door and step inside. And meanwhile, there's this raging animal who's in attack mode that looks like he's just going to tear the man apart. But what would happen over the course of the next, like, three to five minutes is the cameras would roll as Caesar Milan would break this dog down with some combination of love and respect and authority 
toward the dog. And at certain times, he would make subtle gestures toward the dog. And, and, and even at some times, he would touch the dog in very specific ways to send a message. And, and what would happen over the course of this short period of time is that this raging animal would slowly let his guard down step by step as he gained respect for this man standing inside his cage. And you could see in this dog the focus of his vision going from way up here where a dog has no business being lowered down to where a dog should be because his eyes are now not raised too high. And by the end of that one single encounter, you know what would happen? The physical and inward posture of this dog towards Caesar Milan would be transformed into one of calm submission. That's, if you know the show, that's Caesar's trademark term, by the way. He, he teaches dogs how to become calm, submissive. That is exactly the idea in the first part of verse 2. It's David saying, I have made myself low before God. And now I'm laying down in the dirt like a dog before his master. And I am still and I am quiet. I'm just waiting to see what my master would have me do next. And that brings us to what I think is the focal point of this entire psalm. It's the second part of verse 2. This is where David paints this word picture. He likens himself to a nursing infant. When you think of a nursing baby, there are really three ways you can think about it. And I know moms are going to relate to all three of these. The first way you could think about it is a baby who is about to nurse. The word that comes to mind is desperation. This is a child who needs to nurse now. It's usually associated with some amount of screaming. The second way you could think of it is a, a child, a, an infant who is in the act of nursing. So the picture here is a baby who's aggressively taking in food. The third way you could think of it is a, a baby who has just finished being fed. So the picture there is a fat, happy, full, rotund baby. So either of these three descriptions, uh, either of these three could describe the Christian's attitude toward God, whether it's desperation or aggressive pursuit or satisfaction, but it's specifically that third one that's intended by this scripture, satisfaction. The word that you see in your Bible is this word weaned. In our culture, usually the, the word weaned implies like a baby of a certain age, usually past the age of one or so, and that baby's not so dependent on mom anymore. The usage here is different than that. This is specifically talking about a newborn baby who has just been fed. My wife and I had our first child, Gabe, at a, a hospital in Wisconsin, and there was a lactation consultant there, and she told us something that I'll never forget. She said, you'll know that your baby's done nursing when he looks like a drunken sailor. <laughs> You're going to need a second to picture that, so just go ahead, I'll wait. Just... So you got it? That's, that's all the time you get. Drunken sailor. Nod your head if you got it. I see like four people nod. Okay, I'll show you. I'll show you what a drunken sailor looks like. It looks something like this. That, so if you've had a baby before, you know that that is the picture of a satisfied baby. I want to dig a little bit more into the analogy. So here's the question. What is it about 
a nursing baby in its mother's arms that makes that baby so satisfied? Because the scripture leads us to answer that question as a way to understand how we can be satisfied in the Lord. Because really very few people in life are actually satisfied with their job and their money or their health or the people who lead them or with God. So we're going to start here. What is it about the baby in its mother's arms that makes that baby so satisfied? Well, the mother feeds her baby. She provides for her baby's needs. That's clear. But even more than that, the mother loves her baby. Here's the parallel. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus, you are his child, his, his son, his daughter. That's crystal clear in a scripture in John chapter 3 that I want to read for you. Actually, it's 1 John chapter 3. Here's what it says. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called His children. And that is what we are. As children of God, He's pleased to provide for our physical needs. But 1 John 3 goes further than that. And it says that our Father lavishes us, His children, with love. I want you to consider something. If God met your physical needs, and if you sensed love from Him, would that be enough to make you completely satisfied in Him? If it hasn't happened already, I believe there's going to come a day when you will doubt God. Yeah, He provides for your physical needs, but how do you know that He has good intentions for you? How do you know He's not just setting you up for disaster, like a farmer feeds his pig before the slaughter? I mean, what looks like love isn't always love, right? Take Satan, for example. He hates you, but he does an incredible job of making it look like he loves you. When you sense love from God, how do you know he's not doing the same thing? Just putting on an act. There might come a day when you doubt that God exists. And we all see the, or we all hear the, the intellectual and philosophical arguments in support of God, but when it really comes down to it, we rely so heavily on the credibility of those scientists and those philosophers who bring the intellectual arguments to the table. Everybody has an agenda they're pushing. Facts and statistics can be twisted this way and that way to support whatever point you want. The Bible says much about the character and the nature of God, but how can we even be confident that the Bible is a reliable source? We could stand here this morning and give proof after proof of the reliability of the Scriptures. But even when faced with the most rock-solid evidence, our sin-stained human nature always makes us prone to skepticism toward God. For that reason, there is only one way for us to be truly satisfied in Him. Trust. We have to trust the Lord. Believe that what he says is true. Because when it comes to the full range of things that we could possibly believe in, we have to trust someone. It's not, a, it's not a question of whether or not you'll place your trust in someone. It's a question of who you will trust. Some people trust in the government and all the things that it promises to deliver. Some people trust in science and and all of the things that common sense can do to help us make sense of the world around us. Scientific thinking. Some people trust in false gods, made-up deities, idols. Some people trust in superstition. 
Some people trust in blind luck. Some people trust in God. You might think of yourself as the exception. Maybe you've decided that no entity out there is reliable or trustworthy. And so uh, you can't believe a word that anyone says about anything. And you've decided to reject them all. And then you find that you trust yourself. That you're the only one who exists in the world that knows the truth about things. See, that's the way this works. As soon as you decide to discredit one source as being untrustworthy, at that very moment you credit a different source as being trustworthy. There's not a moment of our lives that we don't trust anyone. We always trust someone. We must, by necessity. So who do you trust? Trusting God is the only way to be fully satisfied in Him. So how do we do that? On what basis can we trust in God? If it's not on the basis of the food that He provides for us and material possessions, or if it's not on the basis of science or on written words or on the basis of history, what could give us the ability to really trust in God enough to be actually satisfied? The answer to that question is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God himself actually living inside the believer, giving us every reason we need, convincing us that he is trustworthy. Look, I know that if, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you don't have a relationship with God, that answer sounds like utter foolishness. Because <laughs> what we're saying is that God can be trusted because he tells us internally he can be trusted. It's totally circular thinking. It's, it's foolishness. But I want you to listen very carefully to a scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to join in this foolishness. See, God loves you, and he wants you to trust in him. So I challenge you to give your life to him and allow him to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and you decide for yourself if he is not completely trustworthy. That's a new idea for you. If, if you'd like to learn more about how to begin a relationship with God, I'd like you to come and talk with me after the, after the service, after we're finished here. Or talk to someone else here. You can find one of the pastors or just find someone who looks like they might know something about that. Just don't leave this place today with that unresolved. Look, once he lives inside of you, you will find that only God can be trusted. Not your mom, not your spouse, not your minister, not your senator. Those people may point you toward God, but never make the mistake of placing your trust in them. Only God can be trusted. For that reason, only in Him will you be truly satisfied, like a child weaned in its mother's arms. Let's finish with verse 3. It gives us an encouragement for how to move forward with the appropriate posture before God. 
Here's what it says. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is one of many cases in the Bible where if you have a relationship with God and you are His child, you can take your first name and substitute it for the word Israel. You can do that. The Bible says that as His children, we are spiritual Israel. So if you know the Lord, insert your name here. What I want to do is just give a simple paraphrase of this last verse. And uh, if you want, you can take a look at the screen and read the words of the scripture as I do that. Oh, Dan, even though it's hard, even though it's painful, just be patient. Stay put and trust in the Lord. Put your hope in Him at this very moment and, and hope in Him into the future, out to a time that you can't even imagine. Hope in the Lord to eternity. And once you've brought yourself to that appropriate posture before God, just stay put. Just stay put. Let's pray together. Father, please help us to make sure that we don't think too highly of ourselves. Help us to recognize our position versus your position. I pray that you would establish a level of trust in us that dispels all doubt. You know, and even if, even if doubts can't completely go away, I pray that our level of trust in you would trump doubt. That our, our trust in you and the truth of who you are would be stronger than any doubt and overshadow it. Help us to put our hope in you from this time forth and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.